war, uh, war creates all kinds of moral dilemmas. A moral dilemmas like kill or be killed. That's a moral dilemma. Uh, I was recently reading a story of a young woman. Uh, it happened during World War II. And the young woman was presented with a choice. Uh, give her body to the Nazi soldiers or her family would be sent to a concentration camp and certain death. Give your body to the Nazi soldiers and if you refuse then all of your family are going to be shipped off to a concentration camp and certain death. That's a moral dilemma. Would you do something immoral to save the lives of those you loved? That's a tough question, isn't it? But I'm going to guess most of you would do something immoral in order to save the lives of those you love. Leading God's people for three decades now, uh, I know everything's supposed to be black and white. Uh, that's what Christians you know, kind of put forth, but it's just not true. Uh, leading God's people for more than 30 years now has brought me into several gray areas of moral dilemma. And I'm very transparent about that uh, around here at Cornerstone. We're a little bit different kind of church, and just embrace that, and, and don't be scared of that. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of our disciples in Asia reached out with a story that she was suffering violent abuse at the hands of her husband continuously. We knew it was going on. It kept escalating, and then one day, in a rage of violence, he reached for her, but instead of embracing her with love, he grabbed her, violently bit down on her ear with all of his might, and ripped her ear from her head and spit it out. Just wanted, you got a picture, right? I cannot imagine the physical pain involved in such an act. I, have, I just can't. I know how it feels to be hit in the air. I can't imagine that. Uh, nor can I imagine the emotional pain she received from someone who's supposed to love her and protect her. She reached out uh, to me on the day of the incident on the way to the hospital. She said, what should I do? She asked for advice. Uh, we immediately wired some money, and we paid the surgeons to, you know, surgically reattach her ear to her head while there was still time. And I, as a pastor, was presented with a moral dilemma. Uh, as a man of God, I believe God wants me to uphold the sanctity of marriage. And I do uphold the sanctity of marriage. I champion marriage. That's what God wants me to do. He wants me as a spiritual leader, to be a champion for marriage. But I also believe that God wants me to protect the physical and emotional well-being of His children. You see the dilemma I'm hung in. Uphold sanctity of marriage, protect people's lives. Now you're put into that moral dilemma. What advice should I give her? She's on the phone now saying, what do I do? Well, I'll tell you, I... I told her to file a police report, leave your husband immediately, seek refuge of the safety of your father's house, grab your things and run to your father's home. Immediately, 
enact proceedings to divorce your husband. And from this moment, start praying that God would give you a partner who will love you and cherish you. And when he does, remarry and live a happy life. And that's the advice I gave her. Now, whether you agree or disagree, I think I gave her 100% the correct advice. But I was put in a moral dilemma to have to give her that advice. I'm going to assume that many of you have experienced moral dilemmas of your own. These are always excruciating circumstances, and you just want to throw up when you're put in this position. It's that gut punch that says, I don't know what to do. Anything I do is not a good choice, and and it's just excruciating. For the next few weeks, we're going to focus on several stories of Old Testament women. For those of you who are new here, we've been preaching through some Old Testament characters, and so our our greater part of our congregation is well-versed on who... Uh, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Samson and all these characters are. And uh, now, because we start on Mother's Day for the month of May, we're going to switch over and tell some of the women's stories that are in the Old Testament. Here's what I want to say to you before we get into these stories, because they're, they're, they're hair-raising stories. These are exciting stories. Uh, many of them are kind of PG-14 stories, okay? And you just have to go with that. We're not telling these stories just to be sensational. We're telling these stories because the New Testament authors believe these stories are an essential part of the whole Bible story. The New Testament authors are looking back and say, oh, you know, don't forget to talk about her. Hey, don't forget her story. Oh, and yeah, mention her as well. They seem to think that the stories we're about to tell are essential to the Bible's overall plot. For example, when writing the biography of Jesus Christ, Matthew opens his biography with a genealogy. And Matthew, in his opening lines of the story of Jesus, lists several women in the genealogical record of Jesus. Women are not typically listed in genealogical records. So this is, just on face value, tremendous that he's calling out these women as important parts of the Bible plot. Let me read you about the first one of those women. Matthew 1, one. this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father uh, of Judah and his brothers, the twelve tribes. Verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I just want you to underline that in your mind and focus on that name. Here's a woman being mentioned whose name is Tamar. Matthew said she's so important to the story. I'm going to insert her into the genealogy of Jesus to remind you that you need to go back and learn about her story because her story is pivotal to your understanding of what's happening in the opening books of the Bible. Now, here's the problem. The story's a bit confusing and it's a bit R-rated. And so in your entire life, you've been in church all your life. You've never once heard a sermon from Genesis 38. You have never in your life heard the story of Tamar. Yet Matthew thinks she's so important that everybody needs to stop and just understand exactly what her story is. One of the most profound moral dilemmas presented in all of the Bible is the dilemma of Tamar. She faced one of the most profound moral dilemmas of anybody in the Old Testament. She is the mother of the two boys. 
Perez and Zerah, mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Her story is told in Genesis chapter number 38, sitting right in the middle of what we typically call the Joseph drama. Let me show you where she's sitting. Here's the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 to 5. Adam, Eve, and the fall. We all tracking that together? Creation, chapter 3, the fall. Cain and Abel leads up to Noah, chapter 6 to 10. Hard restart on the earth. God's people have failed in the covenant, establishes a new covenant. Tower of Babel follows, goes right downhill again. Abraham, chapters 11 through 25, one of the most important characters in the whole Bible. Okay? God establishes a covenant with this man. He has a woman, a wife named Sarah. They are old. They cannot conceive children. And God says, I'm going to do a miracle. You're going to have a baby. And this is going to be the start of a whole new nation. I can't find a nation who will be God's people. God said, I'll just build my own nation. And so I'm going to use the word Israel right here. We use the word God's people here a lot. But Israel is about to be born going this way. Okay? Uh, Abraham. Isaac. Help me out. Jacob. Chapters 37 to 50 is the problem. This is pretty clear cut. He's not what, they're not what God wants them to be. They fell, break the covenant. They break and fell the covenant. They mess the covenant up. Abraham takes, you know, a handmaid, a a sex slave named Hagar. They have another child. That's not God's plan. He wants the son to be the promised son Isaac from Abraham and Sarah. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau's a jerk. Jacob's also a jerk and a crook. They fail God. Jacob's going to have 12 sons. I'll draw it in just a second. Now, this is the way the Bible's going. And you're like, wait, these are God's people. Why are they so broken? Here we are. And you get over to here, and most people tell you that this section is about Joseph, chapters 37 to 50. Now, here's what's interesting. Chapter 37 is about Joseph. He gets sold by his brothers. Remember that story? They actually want to murder him. Chapter 38 is the story of Tamar and Judah then what in the world is this all about? Moses is writing the book of Genesis while he's standing in the Exodus. Now just imagine this. Moses delivers the people. Here they are in the wilderness. They've got the law of God. They're building the tabernacle. They're becoming the people of God in a covenant relationship. And Moses says, you know what you people need? You need the backstory of Israel. You need to know where you came from. You need to know why there is a God's people. You need to know how you came to be Abraham's descendants. So Moses takes in hand to write the book of Genesis to be the backstory of God's people. Now, this is what's interesting to me. Most people think this is about Joseph right here, 37 to 50. It's not. This story right here, Moses takes great pain to say, here's Joseph, stop the story. Here's Tamar and Judah, restart the story. Now here is Joseph and Judah going forward 
in unity. Let me say it one more time to you. God's people are broken. God's people are broken. God's people are broken. He starts building a new nation. They have 12 sons of Jacob. And the sons are an absolute World War III with each other. This is so much family dysfunction and disunity and brokenness that when you get to the 12 tribes of Israel, his name is Israel right here. When you get to the 12 tribes of Israel, the family's fractured into a thousand pieces. He's a terrible father. The mothers are terrible mothers. The kids are terrible kids. How's that for a synopsis of what God's people look like? That's the situation right here. Somehow, we have to go from complete disunity and dysfunction to unity as God's people. How will God in the early 20s get his people back on track by the 50s here? That's the story you're trying to find as you're reading your Bible. This is not a story about Joseph. This is actually a story about the reunification of God's people and it's the story of how God's people finally get their heads screwed on straight. Does that seem like a good story? The story of how God's people get their heads screwed on straight. Let me say it to you a better way maybe. After you leave the book of Genesis and go this way to the rest of the Old Testament, the entire story is about Judah. Not about the other people. So I'm even sitting back studying this for weeks and I'm thinking, you know what? Joseph may not even be the main character of this at all. Judah may be the main character, but Judah's such a train wreck. Without Tamar, maybe she's the main character. I'll let you decide. A woman in a man's world. Let's start right here. Patriarchy is presented in the Old Testament here as the broken cultural model of the ancient world. It is the backdrop. Patriarchy is the backdrop for every biblical story that you're reading. Now here I want to be very sure you understand what's happening. Patriarchy is not the Bible's message. Patriarchy is being presented as the backdrop to these stories to show you the curse of sin from the Garden of Eden. Patriarchy is the curse. The gospel is the cure to that curse. So when you're seeing all of this broken patriarchy, the Bible's not saying men dominate the women. The Bible's not saying men subjugate the women. The Bible's saying sin's entered into the world now, and this thing's going to just blow up now. Relationships are going to be just a complete mess, and there comes the backdrop of patriarchy against which all of the Bible stories are being told. Now, patriarchy is not God's ordained way for His people to live. Patriarchy is not the Bible message. Patriarchy, which means male rule, by the way, Patriarchy gave men priority and power over women. All men had power and priority over all women in this cultural setting. Patriarchy demanded female submission. Patriarchy deprived women of legal rights. Uh, uh, patriarchy made females the property of males. They were essentially bought in transactions with dowries and monies and gifts. The women essentially became the property of the men. Patriarchy always upholds slavery. Patriarchy established 
something called primogeniture. Primogeniture is favoring one man over another man with special status, typically because he's the firstborn. Primogeniture is also a terrible thing because it gives men power uh, to subjugate other men based not on their merit, not on their quality, based only on their birth order. Surely you've seen a movie or read a book about some of the kings of Europe who couldn't even put their boots on, they're so stupid, but yet they end up being the king because they're in the right birth order of the right family. Certainly you've seen a story like that. Primogeniture gives men power over other men, not based on any merit, any intelligence, any leadership skills, or any honor, just because they came out of the womb first. It has devastating consequences on any society and upon any family. Patriarchy reduces a woman's role to that of bearing and producing male heirs. Patriarchy reduces the women's role in life as nothing more than a vehicle to produce male heirs. Her honor is tied to family honor, and she must produce males in order to bring the family honor. And in case you're wondering, how many males? Seven males. Seven male sons is the gold standard for patriarchy. Uh, so unless you have seven sons here this morning, you get an F in the rules of patriarchy. Uh, it, uh, that's the gold standard for a woman. Uh, now, whatever goes wrong in patriarchy culture, the situation will always be blamed on the nearest woman. Whatever goes wrong. And so when you're reading these stories from the Old Testament, you're like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, I'm remembering this now. This all sounds too familiar. So now we're introduced to Tamar, the Canaanite. Now, Tamar's story is not to be read in isolation. In other words, I can't pull chapter 38 out and preach it as this standalone thing without you understanding it has a setting. And the setting is what makes the story so important to the Bible. Her story exists embedded into the God's people story that Moses is telling in the book of Genesis. In this case, Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham, represents God's covenant people. God's people. Abraham and Sarah bear a son named Isaac. Isaac takes a bride, Rebekah, has a son named Jacob. Now, he also has a son named Esau, and Abraham has two other wives, but that's not the story we're telling. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob works seven years for that woman right there. I'm going to tell that story in a minute. He gets this one right here. They both bring their slaves into the marriage. We'll deal with that in just a second. This is now Jacob's family, or Israel. Israel. Here is Israel. There are the 12 tribes of Israel. This will be Joseph. And ultimately, this will be Benjamin. This will be Reuben. This will be Simeon. This will be Levi. And that will be Judah. Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. Zilpha will have two 
two children as well. And Bilfa will have two children as well. I think this is Gad and Asher, if I can remember right. Gad and Asher. There's no five. Who's five? Five. Is this, is, this is Issachar. This is, I think, Zebulun. Bilha's kids escaped me just at the, Dan and Naphtali. Dan and Naphtali. You don't care. You don't care. You don't care. Here's what you care about right here. Okay? There's the 12 tribes of Israel. That is correct. Tamar enters this story with this guy right here. Judah will be the largest tribe of Israel. Judah will be the most prominent tribe of Israel. And going forward after about chapter 38, really once you leave the book of Genesis, the story's all about Judah, not so much about the other sons. Oh, Samson comes from the tribe of Dan and you know, uh, some come out of the half-tribes of Joseph, uh, Manasseh, and Ephraim. I think uh, Gideon is one of those. But, but they're not the story. The real story that the Bible's telling is Judah. The bigger story the Bible's telling is these are God's people. It's like God looking down here and saying, you're my people. If I want something spiritual done in Fort Worth, Texas, I'm going to use my people to do it. And you're supposed to represent me to this community. Is that fair? These are the people that were supposed to represent God to their community. Judah will be the largest tribe. Judah will be the monarchy. In other words, in the coming chapters, in the coming books of your Bible, when they go into the promised land and they get a king, David will ultimately be the kingly tribe. He is from the tribe of Judah. And all of his children will be, Solomon and onward, will be the kings of Israel. This is the tribe of the monarchy. It's the largest tribe tribe of all of the 12 tribes the whole story is about judah now up to this point in the story what's been very clear is that the patriarchs were against marrying their sons to canaanites this is what's clear abraham and sarah came out of ur of the chaldees they have a son they send eliezer their servant back to their people to get a bride rebecca he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. He says, do not marry Canaanites. And Esau's such a jerk, he runs right out and marries a Canaanite just to make his dad mad. Jacob runs from Esau back to the people of his mother to take a wife, and that's the one he wants, remember? He gets all of these four wives back in Rebekah's kinfolk's house, at her brother's house, they keep sending their male seed back to go get brides of their own people. You're not allowed to marry a Canaanite. Now, what I just want you to know is it matters what happens to Judah because Judah becomes the covenant standard bearer of the family. He is the future of this whole family. Not Joseph, not Benjamin. Judah is the future of the family this is the reason there's a Genesis chapter 38 in your Bible. So let's talk about Judah just for a minute. Judah's dysfunctional family. Judah is weighed down with the baggage of a completely dysfunctional family now. In other words, here he sits, fourth in line, in a system of patriarchy and primogeniture. You would think this would be the leader, or this would be the leader, or something like that. I'll show you how number four gets to be the leader, okay? Uh, Judah... His family's dysfunctional. 
His dad is kind of a jerk, Jacob. His mother is Leah. She's not the pretty one and not the loved one. Judah is in this dysfunctional family. He's never seen a good Christian marriage. He has no idea what that even means. Judah has never experienced the love of Christian parenting. He doesn't even know what that means. He has no idea what Christian parenting or godly parenting. He's never experienced any of that. Judah, as a grown man, carries this incredibly deep father wound. His father hurt him, has scarred his life so deeply. We don't know up to this point in the story if he'll ever get over it. He carries this deep father wound and he carries it because his father Jacob was tricked into marrying his mother Leah. The whole family knows it. It is not a secret. It is very open. His father does not love his mother. This is the dysfunction of their family. They don't even try to keep it a secret from the kids. Jacob does not love Leah. Well, that's Judah's mother. His mother is unloved. So therefore, what do you think the boys are feeling over here? They feel unloved. By the way, there's a girl over here too named Dinah, who's a descendant of Leah as well. They have a sister named Dinah. And that whole group of people feel completely ostracized and unloved. Jacob only married Leah because the father-in-law, Rebecca's brother Laban, pulled a switcheroo in the dark of the night after a long night of heavy celebrating He goes in to consummate the marriage and her father pulls her out of the tent and puts her in the tent. Now, I have no idea how you can pull a switcheroo like that and the guy not figure it out. I'll have to let you draw the picture and fill in the blanks. The Bible doesn't offer us any help on that. But when he wakes up in the morning, Jacob is ticked that he's got the wrong woman in bed with him. And he has just married, according to the rules of patriarchy, he has just married the wrong woman. And he worked seven years to get the wrong woman. You talk about bait and switch, that was the ultimate right there. So he runs to his father-in-law Laban and says, what in the world have you just done to me? I worked seven years for Rachel. And here's what dad says. Rachel and Leah's father says, oh, I appeal to the laws of primogeniture, the Younger cannot be given in marriage before the elder. And so he peeled to the rules of patriarchy and primogenitor and said, no, you can't do that. We have to give the, the, the elder sister first. Now here's what it did. In this ongoing family now, it pitted sister against sister in a lifelong fierce rivalry for the affection of the husband Jacob. Now ultimately... Leah is now trapped in a marriage where she is unloved. You say, well, why don't she just get out? It's just not that easy. She's trapped in a marriage with four women, and she can't get out of it. She'll never have the affection of her husband, even though she's given her husband six sons and a daughter named Dinah. Her lot in life is to be unloved. That's it. Now, you talk about just scandalous and terrible. You understand when I tell you this family is totally 
dysfunctional. There's nothing she could do to win Jacob's favor, and she tried everything that she could think of. These sisters bring their slaves into the marriage. They bring a handmaid with them, each of them, Zilpha and Bilhah, and together they produce 12 sons for Jacob. Bilhah and Zilpha are essentially sex slaves. That is their role in life. And that's another dark practice of patriarchy. When Rachel, the loved wife, eventually laid in the game, gives Jacob a son named Joseph, later Benjamin. She dies in childbirth, delivering Benjamin. But when she gives Jacob finally a son from the beloved wife, this son gets all of dad's affection and th- because she got all of dad's affection. And now what it does is it ostracizes everybody else that lives in the home. He had complete disregard for his other sons. He doted all this favor upon Joseph. And to make matters worse, young Joseph in his arrogance, that's the story of Joseph. He is not self-aware. He's not a hero. He's not self-aware. And in his arrogance, the little jerk is sent out to lord over the other brothers and he pours gasoline on smoldering embers of hurt that these other sons are carrying. And finally they said, enough of this punk, let's just kill him. Just kill him. Now it's Judah that steps in and says, no, let's don't kill him. Let's traffic him into human bondage. Let's sell him into slavery. Now, although Judah is the fourth, what you recognize very quickly in the story is everybody listens when Judah speaks. Although he's the fourth born, something has happened in their family that Judah is the spokesman and the standard bearer for the family. You say, what has happened that number four is now number one? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what happened. In the meantime, Reuben slept with his father's sex slave. You know what that'll get you? Disinherited. That's what that'll get you. In the meantime, their sister Dinah was raped by some of the Canaanites. A Canaanite. The brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, are incensed. Simeon and Levi go down to the city where the people live that raped her and they tell the men, you must all get circumcised in order our, our anger to be assuaged. So every male in the city gets circumcised and when they are sore, the Bible says, Simeon and Levi storm the city with swords drawn and murder every male in the city, premeditated murder. Can you imagine trying to fight in that condition? It's hard to run, I bet. Simeon, Levi, disinherited. Now, do you understand why Judah's the family spokesman? Judah is the man, and he's going to be the big tribe that's going to become the throne of Israel and the leaders of Israel. But that's how Reuben, Simeon, and Levi get kicked out. Judah has clear expectations that the, according to the rules of primogeniture, he is now the man. He is the birthright standard bearer of Jacob's family. The birthright has passed to him. 
But then when the story starts playing out, he expects the birthright has passed to him. And then daddy makes Joseph a coat of many colors. Anybody coming back to the story now in your mind? And when dad starts putting all of this favor and love on young Joseph, Judah says, no way. We are all about to get passed over and that punk, the baby of the family, is about to get everything. You see what's happening now. Dad starts heaping favoritism on Joseph. Judah's a grown man. And Judah's like, no, that's not the way this is going to play out. And resentment rises to a whole new level. And that father wound is freshly opened. And all these boys realize how unloved they are in this family. So the story goes, they sold Joseph into slavery. And then what Judah did is he heartlessly pulled off a cover up and broke his dad's heart. He took a bloody coat, that bloody coat of many colors, back to his dad. And he said, well, it looks like a lion, eight your favorite son. Too bad, too sad. You know what's really going on? Judah said, ha, how does it feel to have your heart smashed? How does it feel to have your heart stomped on, dad? My son, my son. Yep, looks like lions got him. That's a rough way to go, isn't it? I bet that really hurts. Dad's weeping, about to lose his mind. You know what Judah's thinking? Yeah, it it sucks not to be loved, doesn't it? Heartbreak's rough, isn't it? Take that, Dad. You say families would never do that. I watch families do this all the time as a pastor. I watch kids try to hurt their parents. I watch parents hurt their kids. I watch husbands hurt their wives. I watch wives hurt their husbands. I watch people hurt their grandparents. I watch people hurt their grandkids. I watch people hurt people. it's, It's part of the human story. And Judah dishes out a big old dose of this back to his dad. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it, but I'm saying he broke his father's heart. And as soon as he did, the story now picks up. Judah breaks his dad's heart. They sold Joseph into slavery. And immediately, Judah now runs away from the family. I think Judah stomped on his dad's heart, looked at this mess, and said, You know what? This family's dysfunctional. I want out. And he got out from them. And he went over into Canaanite territory. And he forged a friend with a Canaanite named Hiram, Hira. And he forges friendships with the Canaanites, the idol worshipers. And sure enough, you know what's about to happen. He takes a Canaanite wife. I'm going to read it now. Genesis 38. Here we go. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to still another son named Shelah. Okay, Judah has gone to Canaanite territory. I think we've got the story going in a nice way now. Judah's gone to Canaanite territory. He has a Canaanite wife. Shayla. Let's call him Shay just to make it easy. They're the three sons of Judah. Judah has three sons now with a Canaanite woman. That's the story of the Bible. Now we're almost to Tamar. Hold on to your seat. Here we go. Tamar's coming into Judah's family now. By an arranged marriage, Tamar is brought into this dysfunctional family. Remember, the pain, 
of Jacob's rejection is just smoldering in the life of Judah. It's left him a dark, angry, violent, heartless man. Judah's wife is pregnant. Ur, Onan, and Shea. Rather than breaking the terrible cycle of his family, rather than being a better father than Jacob was to him, rather than being a better man than his daddy was, or his grandfather was, instead of breaking the patterns of the past, Judah becomes just as bad as all of his fathers before him. Now, I hope the message is about to get personal for everybody. Rather than saying, you know what, my dad didn't do right, I'm going to do right. He said, my dad didn't do right and I'm hurt so bad, I'm going to damage everybody I come in touch with. And he did. He passed his incredible baggage right down to his three sons. And when you read the story, his three sons turn out to be just like dear old dad, a jimongous jerk. Genesis 38, 9. Judah got a wife for Ur. Now Ur is a grown man. Shay's just a baby boy. Ur is a grown man. And he gets a wife, gets a wife for Ur, and her name is Tamar, Tamar the Canaanite. She enters Judah's family as an arranged marriage when she was gotten, I'm sure in a financial transaction, for him, for the firstborn Ur. In this system, the, the husband and wife do not leave the father's family, as the Bible says we're to do, and go become their own family unit. In patriarchy, the wife is absorbed into the family of the husband. Tamar is certainly a teenage girl. They are given in marriage as soon as they hit puberty. She is certainly a young teenage girl. And now she is the property of the Judah family. I want to be very clear what I'm saying. She's there. She's stuck. She's trapped. She's their property now. They own her. And she's just a young girl. Now, we're spared the details in Genesis 38 of how miserably it must have gone for Tamar in this dysfunctional family. So here's what the Bible says, just to kind of give you a high-level view. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Well, that's kind of a synopsis of a man's life. He was born. He was such a sorry individual, God said, just kill him. And that's his whole life story. Now, we don't know all the details, but we know now that Tamar's a widow because Ur is dead, okay? Now, the story unfolds at this point a very strange ancient custom whereby the surviving brother is to take the widow as his own wife in order to raise up children for the dead brother. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know a little bit about this. And if you haven't, you're totally grossed out right now. And that's creepy for sure. It's an ancient custom, and that's why all of this is broken. It's when I, you know, when I run into people who say to me, Alan, you and I were talking about this, I do everything the Bible says. Well, I hope you don't. I hope you don't. Because it's not all for you. Some of it's there just to show you how broken the world is. So what happens is, this son is dead. So now Judah gives Tamar to this son in order to raise up, to be a wife, but also to have children that will be raised up for uh, uh, the firstborn son. But here's the problem. Onan is wicked too. Now let me just show you how twisted son number two is. Onan married Tamar 
to honor his brother Ur with this twist. It's all a sham. He looks outwardly like he's following the rules of society and he's going to raise up seed for his brother, but he only wants Tamar as a playmate. He has no intention of giving her a son. So now we come to the first moral dilemma. Under this system of primogeniture, a man's responsibility to his brother who died was to take the widow at an incredible personal cost to himself and raise up a child for his brother. Doing the right thing is incredibly expensive, especially if the deceased brother was a firstborn child. Let me see if I can explain. Judah is the father of three sons. So you divide your state into fourths. You give one-fourth to Shea, you give one-fourth to Onan, and because of primogenitor, you give a double portion or two-fourths to the firstborn. Everybody with me so far? Let's just reduce the fraction. That's actually one-half. Son number one gets a half of the estate. Son number two gets a fourth. These two split a half, basically. A fourth, a fourth, and a half. So the death of Ur is actually a big windfall to the other two brothers. Don't miss this. When the firstborn dies, who's due half of the estate, now the calculation changes. Now the calculation says Judah has two sons, divide the estate into thirds. Two-thirds goes to the firstborn now, and one-third goes to the other son. Now listen, two-thirds is a lot bigger than one-fourth. This guy just made a killing on his inheritance. But now he's faced with the problem. We've got the widow over here, and he's supposed to raise up a child for the widow. If the widow has a child, it won't be his son, it'll be his son. And he's back in the inheritance business. Everybody tracking now? Are you tracking Erica McNair? You're following what's happening? Okay. If family honor takes precedence, let me say it this way, then this guy will give her a child. If he gives her a child, family honor, it's actually his child. It's raised up in the name of the brother. And the inheritance reverts back to one-half, one-fourth, one-fourth. That's if family honor takes precedence. Now, doing the right thing is costly. That's what I want you to start figuring out here. This is all about family honor in a family that has no honor. If family honor takes precedence, Onan will impregnate Tamar in the name of the brother. He has no intention of impregnating her. He just wants to play with her. That's what you're about to see. You say, why? The family has no honor. That's the point. God's people are disgusting. God's people are broken. God's people need to be fixed. But how in the world will it get accomplished? We have no idea early in the story. Let's assume Let's assume that Judah's estate is worth a million dollars. Okay? One-fourth of a million, 0.25, equals 
6 equals Just so you know, we're dealing with the sum of money here. If you get a fourth inheritance, you're going to get $250 out of your dad's estate. If you get two-thirds inheritance, you're going to get 600 What are we looking at? A difference of $410,000. Onan goes to see his financial advisor. He says, I've got a situation in my family. Family honor, keep the money. Family honor, keep the money. Does the family have any honor? What do you think he's going to do? He's going to keep the money. He's going to keep the money. That's exactly what he's going to do. The story reveals that Onan kept the money, but with a wicked twist, he pretended to do the honorable thing by having continuous physical relationships with Tamar, but he had no intention of giving her a child. He saw that as a win-win scenario. I have a playmate and I've got the cash. I just put it in my, my Roth and in my IRA and it's making 30% a year and things are going great. It's win-win for me. Let me read you the story. Genesis 35, 8. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty, family honor, to your brother and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. He's going to mess up his inheritance if he impregnates her. So whenever he slept with her, which definitely sounds like it wasn't a one-off situation. Whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. What did God do? God put him to death. Here's the situation we're in right now. This guy's just, ah, he's in junior high, Okay. The two grown men are dead. He's got another baby boy that's just a, a, little, a little lad. Tamar is trapped in this family as their property. She is trapped in a system of abuse. She's just a pawn in a tribal dynasty. Judah, the head of the family, has no honor. But here's what he says. He says, when Shay gets old enough to marry, I'll give you to the baby Shay, and then you can get back the family going again here. But... but That'll take some time. And time passes in the story. And really, I think what Judah's saying is she's a jinx. This girl's bad luck. Ever since we brought her into family, patriarchy says blame the nearest woman for everything. Since we brought this woman into our household, I've lost son number one. I've lost son number two. Everything's against me. And so what Judah does is he sends Tamar, the widow, twice over. He sends Tamar back to her father. Now, I just want you to imagine what kind of shame that would be. Going back to your father's house with your suitcase and, and walking in, and they say, well, well, Tamar, well, what's going on? They've rejected me. They've sent me back. I'm def- I, I, what's the return policy on, to, on, a, on a wife? I've been sent back as broken and dysfunctional. They don't want me. They say they'll send for me in a few years, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. And you know what? It didn't. Time went by in the story. Shea now is a grown man. It all happens in Genesis chapter 38. Judah has no honor. He's broken his promise to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And now Judah's deception creates a moral dilemma for Tamar. Here's the big moral dilemma coming. What we discover is that Tamar is the only honorable person in the whole family of God's people. And she's a Canaanite. 
She's the only honorable person in the whole story. And she is constantly seeking to sacrifice her own life, if necessary, for the honor of her dead husband, Ur. Ur would never know. He's already dead. He would never know what Tamar risked in order to do the honorable thing for the family and to keep his family name alive. Now, here's what I want to remind you of. You know what of the 12 tribes is the biggest tribe? You know which tribe the kings are coming from? When Jesus is, comes, he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Ain't looking too good, is it? Two down and only one left, and I bet he's going to be as big a jerk as his dad. And God's just killing them one by one. It looks to me like the tribe of Judah is about to be extinct, is what it looks like to me. So how do God's people get fixed? Reclaiming family honor. Human trafficking is one of the paramount social issues of our day. And we largely turn a blind eye to it, and we should not. In the world of prostitution and trafficking, I think society has now grown up, and we realize that women are no longer the problem. They are the victims of the problem. Sex trafficking is entirely demand-driven. Please hear the words that I'm saying. Sex trafficking is entirely demand-driven. Most girls are not voluntarily involved. They are trafficked. And this morning, the Word of God is about to challenge you. Can a prostitute be righteous? The author of Hebrews seems to think so. For he openly praises, who I'll talk about in a couple of weeks, Rahab, another prostitute, and calls her righteous, and clearly the same thing is being said of Tamar. In Tamar's case, prostitution was the only way she could overcome the man who wielded absolute power over her life. She did not pose as a prostitute because she was looking for a new career. She did not pose as a prostitute because she was bored and needed some excitement in her life. No, family honor was at stake. And now that big mess is her family. Her family honor is at stake. She's now part of that family, and somebody is now going to do the honorable thing. She married into the people of God. No doubt when she married into the covenant people of God, she thought, well, thank goodness, because I come from these idolater families, and in idolatry, the women are treated like dirt. So glad I get to marry into God's people family now. Surely this would be a much better situation. Boy, was she wrong. God's people now are completely without honor. So she married in, She's widowed twice, and she has decided now, since Judah's not going to do the right thing, I'm going to reclaim family honor for the entire tribe of Judah. I will not be a victim. I will take matters into my own hands. I will do the honorable thing. This is my family, and the rights of my dead husband are being ignored. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is an incredible story of courage. Here a woman is about to risk her very life on a dangerous mission. Up till now she's been passive and she's something snapped in her and she said, I'm not going to be passive anymore. Now I'm going to go do, if the men won't do the honorable thing, I will do the honorable thing. Which leads us to the next scene, Judah 
the John. Genesis 38, verse 12. And after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. Now Judah's widowed. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear the sheep, she says, I'm going to take control now. She took off her widow's clothes. She covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had now grown up, although the Shea is a grown man now, he had not been given as husband and wife. When Judah saw Tamar in her disguise, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her, she dressed like one. He thought she was a prostitute. Now let me qualify Tamar's actions with several statements. Judah, Judah's wife is dead. Tamar is not dishonoring her mother-in-law. The law allowed that if the sons would not do the right thing or if they died, then the father-in-law in the rules of patriarchy would step in with family honor and give the daughter-in-law a child. Tamar knows her new family very well. She knows her in-laws. She knows that Judah will fall for this scheme. Listen to me carefully because she knows exactly what kind of man her father-in-law is. She's going to play him perfectly. Verse 16. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and he said, Come now, let me sleep with you. She said, And what will you give me to sleep with you? I'll send a young goat from my flock. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? 18. What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. Now let me summarize that real quick. Judah takes the bait, the negotiations begin, and Judah says, would you believe I left my wallet and my other pants at home? How's my credit here? She said, well, I'll take your credit, but I need some collateral. Now, this girl's smart. She's risking her life right now. He said, well, what do you want as collateral? She said, well, I'll take your staff and your... Here's what she asked for in American vernacular. I want your driver's license and your credit card. Or your passport and your credit card. And I'm going to hold those. uh, And when you bring me the goat from the flock as payment, I'll return your ID and I'll return your credit card to you. Okay, so that's the story. He goes home. He tells his friend Hira, oh man, I did something the other day, and I'm ashamed to go back and pay in person. Hira, would you go back and pay? You're going that way anyway. Take this goat and drop it off over there at the local prostitute, would you? And pay for services render. Now, we learn something. Verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? The men of the area said, why, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. 
uh-oh, we just learned something completely new. What is a shrine prostitute? Judah assumed when he engaged in her services that she was not just a prostitute, but she was a prostitute employed by the Canaanite idol temple. Judah not only is cavorting with the prostitute, he's committing idolatry with the prostitute. You said, but wait, these are God's people. This is the standard bearer of the covenant between God and Abraham and the people of God. Yes, it is, isn't it? You say, what do we do with this story? Well, we're in a moral dilemma, aren't we? We've got quite a crisis on our hands. What are we going to do, ladies and gentlemen, when God's people are virtually indistinguishable from the world? What are we going to do? Because this is exactly the state of the modern church in America. What are we going to do when God's people are virtually indistinguishable from the other lost people in society? We who are the standard bearers of a covenant relationship with God, we who have a vocation to be God's image bearers, reflecting God to a broken world and reflecting the worship of this world back to God, if we are not those angled mirrors bearing the image of God and carrying the covenant of God, then what is the hope of this world? What is the hope of Tarrant County? What is the hope of our family if God's people are without honor? And as I'm reading the story, I'm saying, God, this man is so broken. Would you please send someone to Judah to hold up a mirror so this man can get a good look at himself and see how far he has fallen in his sin? God is sending someone to Judah to hold up a mirror. And fortunately for us, that woman's name is Tamar. And the reason her story is so important this morning is because she is the woman that God used to save his people and get the entire lot of them, all 12 tribes, back on track. The confrontation. The story is about to reach critical mass now in verse number 24, so hold on to your seat. About three months later, Judah was told... Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And we know that because she is now showing. She's pregnant. Your daughter is guilty. She is pregnant. She's been playing the whore with someone. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Why, you sorry excuse for a man. Those are my words, not the Bibles. I'd like to take him out behind the church and talk to him for a minute. You sorry excuse for a man. No trial. No defense. No explanation. You're just going to assume she's guilty and worthy of death. And you want to have her burned for family honor. Listen, he wants to have her burned because she's dishonored the family by playing the prostitute. Wait a second, she dishonored your family? Your family has no honor. Only she has honor. Do you see how messed up this is? This is such a story, I'm telling you. Quickly, someone get a mirror so that Judah can see himself and see how far he has come. He's become everything he hated about his father. He's become everything he hated about his own family dynamic. He is perpetuating the brokenness of his parents, Judah, 
as the standard bearer of the family, you're now the problem, sir. Verse 25. And as she was being brought out for public execution, she sent a message to her father-in-law and she said, you're right, I am pregnant. And I am pregnant by the man who owns this credit card and this driver's license. See if you recognize the picture on the driver's license. It's as if time stood still right now. There stands Tamar. There stands Judah. Here's the whole family gathering round. They're about to have a public execution and Judah just looked at his own driver's license. He's holding his own visa card in his hand. He has to make a decision now. He finds himself, quite frankly, where you and I find ourselves this morning. He has to decide if he's going to carry the baggage of a broken family or if he's going to make some changes in his life right now. Am I going to blame everyone else and continue as I am or am I going to allow God to change my heart, change my thinking, change my attitudes and change my behavior? And Judah recognized them, verse 26, and Judah said, she is more righteous than I. Listen, God's Word and some of the other translations make this even clearer. Listen to what God's Word says. Judah recognized them and said, she's not guilty. I am. I am. I've been confronted with my own life now. And everything that I was about to pour out viscerally upon this innocent woman, she's doing the honorable thing to save her husband's family name. I'm the problem. She's righteous. I am not. The defining word for a woman named Tamar in your Bible is the word righteous. It's one of the most powerful moments in Scripture where a bitter, angry, selfish man is confronted and transformed in a moment of honest confession. He is not living up to his covenant relationship with God and something must change in his life. And it took a trafficked, abused, marginalized, mistreated young woman to get the entirety of God's covenant people back on track. The name Judah will die in dishonor as a tribe if it's not for this woman. If it were not for this woman, the name Judah will be never mentioned again as a tribe. Now, I want to blow your mind with something, okay? The name Judah is mentioned in your Bible 848 times. The most mentioned name in your Bible is Jesus, around 1,300 times. The second most mentioned name in your Bible, David. David, 1,000 times. The third most mentioned name in your Bible, Judah. The tribe and the nation. She saved God's people with a moment of courageous action Judah will be the standard bearer for God's people it will be David and his descendants and God will ultimately promise David in a few books your son will sit on the throne forever and Jesus the Messiah will come from your Judah's people Judah's people all right let me start to close it down the Aetzer warrior 
When God created woman, he called her by a Hebrew name in Genesis chapter number 3. He called her by the name Aetzer. E-Z-E-R. I challenge you to look it up in your Hebrew concordance. Aetzer is a military word. God said, I will make for Adam a counterpart, a helper like unto him. Aetzer is the word. When God used the word Aetzer, it's used many times, 20-something times in the Old Testament. And almost every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used to describe God fighting for and defending his people. God clearly envisioned when he made woman that woman would be, that women would image God by being warriors, defenders, fighters, champions. There is no other possible definition of the word Aetzer. If you grew up in a tradition where they said the women need to be quiet, you need to be running a vacuum cleaner, and you need to be in the kitchen, or you need to be birthing babies because you were created to be a man's helpmeet, that's not what the word means. The word means God will deliver us. I will look unto the hills from where my help comes from. Where does my help come? My Aetzer comes from the Lord. It's describing God coming to defend His people. That's the exact word used for Eve when she's created in Genesis 2 and 3. Tamar is an Aetzer image bearer of Almighty God. Tamar is the courageous woman warrior that Judah needed her to be. She became the turning point of his broken life. And because of her influence, Judah will now become the man that God always wanted him to be. Through their union, she has twin sons, Zerah and Perez, to replace the two boys that were lost, the two husbands that died. And we stand in her debt this morning because she kept the line of Judah, God's people, alive the monarchy alive, and ultimately she's the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully now. No one in Israel saw Tamar as a family skeleton best left in the closet. When they got together for Passover, they weren't thinking, don't bring Tamar up. That's something we don't talk about. That was not their attitude at all. Tamar is one of the most beloved female names in all the Hebrew nation. After this incident. They didn't see her as (laughs) prostitute. They saw her as savior of God's people. They got them back on track. Do you know what David named his daughter? Tamar. Do you know what his son Solomon the great king named his daughter? Tamar. They're not ashamed of the name. It's what the kings are naming their daughters. When Boaz and Ruth come together for the wedding celebration and they pray a benediction over them in their wedding celebration, do you know what they pray? They pray, Ruth, may you be as Tamar, who bore the twin sons of the tribe of Judah, Perez and Zerah. May you be a woman warrior. May you... She was an outsider too, Ruth was. They prayed that same prayer over her perhaps the best praise of tamar is this judah looked her in the eye and said daughter-in-law you are righteous you're an honorable woman and this has become a turning point for us you're going to save our family let me give you my last thought the transforming power of the gospel now judah doesn't resurface for about four chapters switches back to joseph for a minute and then it starts bringing up the name of judah again And he doesn't show up until Joseph is now the ruler of Egypt. And God, in those closing chapters of Genesis, used a famine 
to begin to reunify the people of God. They're scattered. This one's over in Canaanite territory. One of them's down in Egypt. The others are all just still fighting amongst themselves. God says, I've got to pull my people back together. And through a famine, Joseph leading Egypt, Judah takes the brothers down there to get food. And God uses that incident to start reunifying the people together. You say, well, what's Judah like going forward? Completely changed man. When he goes down to Egypt, he's careful not to break his father's heart. When he goes down to Egypt, he shows honor and respect to everybody. When he goes down to Egypt, he protects the life of Benjamin, the baby brother. He even says when Joseph wants to keep Benjamin as a hostage, Judah says, no, keep me instead. And he goes to prison in order to protect the rest of his family. He's a totally changed man after Genesis chapter number 38. You say, what changed him? A confrontation with a woman who was a Canaanite who had to play a prostitute in order to overcome the power of this wicked man and bring him to a place where God could use him in repentance. We're in Tamar's debt. You know what we need this morning? What we need this morning is we need Tamar's in our generation. Women who will rise up with courage and be the leaders God created you to be. He didn't create you to push a vacuum and be a domestic slave. God created you to be a woman warrior. What we need in this generation is we need some Judas. People with family baggage like you and I. And we have plenty of it. Trust me, all of us do. We need some Judas who will rise up and allow the Spirit of God to speak to their hearts in a tender moment and say, I need to change. There are things in my life that must change going forward. I cannot keep going the way I'm going. Above all, I want you to know this morning that the gospel is more powerful than your past. Here's a man who would sell you into humic trafficking or murder his own brother and treat a woman like property. And within a moment of the Holy Spirit's work in his life, he's a changed man. And you'll never see that old guy again going forward in the story. The gospel has a transforming power and it can turn a broken world right side up. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to just lead you to a moment of decision this morning. That's a lot of information to take in. In this stillness, please hear me now. Don't tune me out. In this stillness, I want you to cycle your heart back to this. The real story is that it's time to get back to being God's people. You. It's time for you to get back to being God's people. It's time for you to overcome your family baggage. It's time for you to embrace your vocation as God's image bearer to this world. Don't answer out loud, but let me ask you a really personal question this morning. Are are you ready to move beyond the mistakes of your parents? Surely you are. Are you ready to deal with your own parenting mistakes that you've made? Surely you are. Young people, are you ready to forgive your parents? You say, yeah, but they made some mistakes. Sure they did. Sure they did. My question is, are you willing to forgive them? 
Are you willing to work with mom and dad as they try to reset your family for God instead of fight against them? Let me ask you, are you ready to put your divorce behind you and start living again? Living with purpose as God's son and daughter? You may have abuse in your story. You may have tragedy in your story. You may have the death of a loved one in your story. You may have the death of a child in your story. Maybe grief and brokenness have consumed you. Maybe they've even defined you. It's time to let go of that. Don't be a victim. Be God's image bearer. God gave you this pivotal story so often overlooked in our Bibles. I want you to take Tamar's story to your heart and let God's word change you this morning. You have to keep moving forward as God's people. You have to keep living for Christ. Shame and regret, these are not your destiny. That's not your destiny. Brokenness and hurt, that is not your destiny. Making disciples in the kingdom of God, that is your destiny. Embrace it. Say to God, I'm going to let the baggage go and I'm going to move forward. I'm going to live with joy. I'm going to live with victory. May I be blessed as Tamar. Whatever you need to say to God this morning, He's speaking to your heart. You, you take your time right now. If you need to kneel at an altar, you come and kneel. If you need to make an altar out of your seat, that's fine. Do not leave here without making a decision for God this morning. Her story has the power to transform you if you'll let it. She connected Judah back to a right way. Let her connect you back to a right way this morning. If you're here this morning, you've never received Christ as your Savior. Jesus loves you so much. He gave himself on the cross in substitution for you. He loves you. He wants you to be a part of His family. He wants you to be God's people. He wants you to give Him His life, your life, and, and He will come live in your heart. He wants to forgive you. But He will not force Himself on you. He's waiting for you to open the door and call upon Him. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart, 
confess with your mouth, he'll save you today. If you've never prayed, prayed a prayer like that, let me pray with you right now. Just pray like this from your heart. Pour out your heart to God. Say something like this. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I know you are the only Savior. I can't save myself. And Jesus, I, I'm asking you right now to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. Save me. Adopt me into your family. Make me forever a part of the people of God. I give my life to you. Make you king of my life. Thank you for dying for me and thank you for rising to be my savior. I give you all that I am and all that I have right now. And I take you into my heart as Lord of my life. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Let me pray over you a benediction as we go. Thank you for your patience with a difficult sermon this morning. Genesis 38 is in your Bible for a reason. It's not an aberration. It's actually the hinge that the rest of the Old Testament swings upon. A woman got this whole thing back on track. What a story. By playing a prostitute to gain control over her fault. It's crazy. You couldn't make it up. In the book of Romans, Paul was trying to encourage the people of God. This is the prayer he prayed over them. May the God of hope fill you with joy, with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's my prayer for you this week as well. God bless you. I'll see you Wednesday night. You're dismissed.